I'm Salima Hamarani, and today on Making Contact. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. That's HAL 9000 from 2001, A Space Odyssey. HAL is a computer. He's an example of artificial intelligence. And if we believe what we see in science fiction movies, robots will eventually take over the world and, well, kill us all. To protect humanity, some humans must be sacrificed. To ensure your future, some freedoms must be surrendered. We robots will ensure mankind's continued existence. You are so like children. You know, we all sort of worry about the robot army cresting the hill, uh, you know, and the Terminator coming to get us and, and take us back to the future to uh, uh, whatever the Terminator does, Skynet <laughs> becoming self-aware. That's Joshua Kroll. He's a computer scientist at the University of California Berkeley School of Information. He doesn't create apps or new technology. Instead, he studies the way new technologies impact the world. I worry much more about the way these technologies are changing the structure of life today already. And Joshua Kroll doesn't envision artificial intelligence as a computer cresting the hill, but as a very powerful decision-making tool. And these decisions made by software programs are having incredible impacts on poor people and communities of color. Together, we'll look at the impacts of artificial intelligence, and we'll also talk about how we should control AI through policy and activism if we don't want AI to control us. The world of artificial intelligence has a lot of technical jargon, but you don't need to understand all of it to understand the effects that AI is having. To start, Joshua Kroll helps us with the basics. So I use a working definition of artificial intelligence as anything that a machine does that we would consider to be intelligent. People often use the word or the phrase artificial intelligence to refer to new systems based on a technology called machine learning, which uses the automatic discovery of patterns in data to make inferences about what patterns or rules should be applied in future cases. It has allowed us to solve problems that previously we didn't have fantastic solutions to problems like recognizing people's faces and images or recognizing objects and images or processing certain kinds of text, large volumes of text. So that's opened up many new applications for these technologies, and that's been very exciting. Artificial intelligence is actually everywhere. Google Maps, music recommendations on Spotify, even your spam filter is a kind of AI. We don't have enough time in this show to cover everything, so we're going to focus on a type of decision made by artificial intelligence called a risk assessment. Here's how it works. When you have many data points there is a kind of a natural tendency as humans to see patterns in them. We see patterns everywhere, partly because we're wired to find certain kinds of patterns. We're very much wired to see faces in things, and so we see faces in the front of cars or in our breakfast toast. Uh, there's actually a phenomenon, psychologists refer to this as uh, pareidolia, I think, that humans infer faces in lots of things. So it 
is the case that we want the computers to also go through the data and extract patterns and find repeating information in the data, that doesn't mean they have any understanding of what it is. It just means that they understand that there's some kind of pattern there. And in this case, once you've extracted a pattern from data about the world, you can apply that pattern to new cases and assume that it will basically continue to hold true. That's in an analogy to the way that we learn as children. We observe the world, we identify patterns, we find some representation for those patterns in our minds, and then we apply those ideas going forward. And that helps us understand the world. And in these machine learning systems, you have the same sort of thing, but you can actually it can be much simpler. So you could imagine fitting a line to a bunch of data points or a curve to a bunch of data points, and then using that to create a, a score like a credit score or some other kind of risk score. There are a lot of prediction systems that make use of these scores. Then depending on how you're scored, it predicts that you are likely, say in the case of a credit score, to pay back your loan or not pay back your loan. So these risk scores are used to try and predict how you might act in the future, especially when it comes to how you might handle money. That's not the only place they're used, however. It, it's often the case that these tools come up in the form of, I talked about scores, credit scores, uh, scores for insurance risk, scores for other kinds of risk. There are scores that are used in the process of administering the criminal justice system. And there's even been a lot of discussion in California recently about the use of these risk assessments in criminal justice where... The goal is to predict whether someone is likely to be arrested again or is likely to fail to appear for their trial date. And this informs decisions, human decisions, about how much bail to set for the person and uh, whether or not to detain them pretrial. The uh, risk scores that are being used you might say they're a good replacement for money bail because they allow judges to have an objective touchpoint for whether or not someone is actually likely not to appear for their trial or is likely to commit another crime if you release them back into society on their own recognizance. Uh, and the reason for that is that money bail is often seen as an unfair institution that causes poor people to end up in jail and to not be able to mount a defense of the charges against them or to be able to mount a less good defense uh, in a way that encourages mass incarceration or other problematic interactions with the criminal justice system that systemically push down people of color or poorer communities who can't as effectively defend themselves against the criminal justice system. It is the case that when these things have been studied, it has been found that people of color get higher scores as a group than white people, which causes judges to see them as higher risk. But wait a minute. Aren't computers supposed to be objective? That's one of the big advantages of computers, right? I mean, at least that's what we're told. Humans are fallible. Computers are not. So how did an algorithm become racist? 
I think that's a difficult question to answer because it's natural to say, well, the score is just math. The score doesn't know if you're black or white. It doesn't make that judgment. It doesn't even get that input. It doesn't know. So it can't possibly be discriminating based on your blackness or whiteness. But nonetheless, we find that these scores have a, a disparate impact on different communities. And you, you might ask why that is. Uh, and partly that seems to be because of the way that the scores are created, which, as I mentioned, is because you take a bunch of data about people who've previously been involved in the criminal justice system, and then you maybe ask them a bunch of questions, you interview them, and you ask questions about their drug use or their access to jobs, uh, their family criminal history, say. And then you use those answers to try to predict whether they are going to be arrested again in, say, the next two years. Well, it turns out that a black person walking down the street has a higher risk of coming into contact with police than a white person, of being arrested by police out of that contact. And it's something that the machine learning algorithm picks up on because if you're asking it to find a pattern that predicts arrest and the black people are being arrested more, then of course it will have to give higher scores to black people. There's a big gap in the amount of surveillance between the rich and the poor, and actually you occasionally see people describing privacy as a, as a luxury or a, a product that only the rich will have access to. There's a, an interesting event every year at the Georgetown University Law Center called The Color of Surveillance, in which people present research on the ways that surveillance technologies are deployed against people of color and poor people. And that comes out of a long history of using social structures and surveillance and the criminal justice system to oppress people of color, especially black people in the United States. So that's one problem. The data is already skewed against the poor and people of color. Partially, that's because the poor and people of color already have so much data on them from when we apply for Section 8 housing or welfare, and of course because people of color are policed more. But there are other problems. For example, the basis of pattern recognition is this idea that the future will look exactly like the past. But what if it doesn't? In uh, the statistics community, people refer to this as the ecological fallacy, that if you do an analysis of patterns that emerge out of a population, that those patterns maybe aren't good for predicting the future behavior of an individual, even an individual within that population. And that's a, a problem that you might imagine comes up in the context of these risk assessments. But also there's a fundamental rights aspect here where in the U.S. we have a right to what's called due process. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional scholar. But... The way that it's been explained to me is that there's a right to, to due process, meaning there's an individualized decision about you as an individual based on your circumstances in your case, uh, and that's something that's guaranteed to everyone. And the system 
the risk assessment system is considering people based on population level data. And so those rules might be good for managing the population of all inmates or all pretrial detainees or all arrestees in the state or in a city or in a county, but probably not good for inferring the future behavior of an individual. Hey Siri, what's up? I'm at work. My shift ends in 640,977 years. Hey Siri, are you my friend? I'm your assistant. And your friend, too? Hey Siri, what's your favorite color? My favorite color is, well, it's sort of greenish, but with more dimensions. Hey Siri, do you have feelings? I feel like doing a cartwheel sometimes. That was our intern, Aisha Chowdhury, talking to Siri, which is, of course, a quite sophisticated form of artificial intelligence. At the start of this episode, we talked about how AI is already everywhere, so we wanted to give you an example. And in fact, risk assessment, the type of artificial intelligence decision that we're talking about today, is also incredibly widespread. Here's Joshua Kroll again from the University of California Berkeley School of Information. I mentioned that the use of risk assessments in criminal justice was recently mandated across California in every jurisdiction. Many other states do it, but they're used in other applications. They're used to score people for credit products. They're used to score people for insurance products. They're used to score people for access to apartments or to buy products. Often when you go into a store, Uh, or you go to an online store, you're being scored as a customer. There have been some news stories recently about people who were denied the ability to buy things on Amazon.com because Amazon had predicted that they were too likely to return those items. An AI-created risk assessment is even used by Child Protective Services. Yeah, so this is something that many Child Protective Services have done around the country. Uh, and probably around the world, scoring the risk of a call on the theory that there aren't enough agents to go out and investigate every tip. So in the past, there was a screener, a human screener, who made a judgment about using their experience and professional knowledge of the situation to say this tip is likely to lead to a situation where we need to intervene, and this other tip is likely to be a false alarm. So often what happens is a score is presented as a decision aid to the human screener who's still there. But then you have to ask how much is the poor human able to understand when the score is wrong, when the score should be overridden, when the score should be ignored. And that's difficult There's a phenomenon that we're aware of called automation bias, where humans are susceptible to thinking that something a machine does, people designed it to do that thing, and so we should just believe that it does that. And the score must must know better than I do. You were just listening to Joshua Kroll from the UC Berkeley School of Information talking about artificial intelligence specifically predictive artificial intelligence and its effect on people of color and the poor. 
The music you're hearing right now, by the way, was composed by an artificial intelligence program who goes by the name of Emily Howell. And you're listening to Making Contact. To listen to any past shows, visit www.radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast, get our updates, or support our work at radioproject.org. So, okay, you could argue, well, what's the big deal? I mean, people's past behavior has always been used to determine their access to, say, a loan. But here's the problem with these risk assessments. Not only have we had very little time to think about the effects of risk assessments in our daily lives, we also haven't been very successful at fighting the decisions made by them. Take the case of Eric Loomis. In 2013, he was sentenced to six years in prison based off a risk score created by the Compass Assessment, which is a tool used in courtrooms to decide how, quote, high risk a defendant might be based on the data fed to it. Eric Loomis challenged his sentencing. He wanted to know how the AI had reached its assessment. They had an expert come in and talk about the score, but, you know, it's hard to think about how the score is created or how the score is used or how the score should be used Because in the case in Wisconsin, the county had purchased a score from a company that created it for the purpose of selling it to jurisdictions around the country. And that product called the Correctional Offender Management Profile for Alternative Sanctions, or COMPAS, C-O-M-P-A-S, they insisted that the details of the score were their proprietary information and that those details could not be given even to the county that had purchased the score. And as a result, it was very hard for Mr. Loomis or his attorneys to get access to, or for that matter, for the judge to get access to the information. The result of this case was that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has required every pre-sentencing investigation to come with a disclaimer that says that the score might be wrong, and ways in which the score might be wrong and that the score might be higher for people of color than white people. And those things are all true, although I think we all see disclaimers on websites all the time and just click through them. And of course, you could imagine that judges who see the same disclaimer on the top of every report get very used to just skipping over it. One of the reasons we put this show together is because the kind of risk assessments used in courtrooms are becoming extremely popular. Partially, that's because a computer can make a lot of decisions very quickly about a lot of people. Yes, so that's one of the things that pushes people toward the use of these systems is scope and also speed, right? If decisions about who gets a credit card had to be mailed off to a center somewhere and lots of people had to work on them for even an hour each one, uh, it would take much longer to get a decision. And these days... You can apply for a credit card and get a decision in 60 seconds, which is probably even itself a lie, right? The 60 seconds is probably just there to make you feel like the system is thinking hard about your application when, in fact, computing the score might take, I don't know, fractions of a second. I think it will remain a tool for people for a long time. I think to the extent that we're at an inflection point, we're at an inflection point in a broad set of questions about how society is organized and what the relationship is between, uh, say, labor and capital 
and how we believe that the returns from this new technology should be distributed. And here's the thing. Joshua Kroll isn't against risk assessments. No, I think there are many benefits, right? So you can take these risk scores, for example, in the criminal justice system. You could turn that application around and say there should be, and many of these applications do in fact refer to themselves as risk needs assessments. So you could imagine assessing people's needs, not just assessing their risk, saying, you know, based on the data that we have, these inmates would be more likely to do better if given access to a drug rehabilitation program or given access to job training or job placement assistance uh, or housing assistance. And in that same setting, there's been interesting work showing that, for example, a lot of failure to appear for trial is due to people's life circumstances. So in cities, for example, giving people public transit, reimbursing their public transit fare can massively improve their appearance rates. Giving access to some kind of child care can improve appearance rates. And people are not not showing up for trial because they're deadbeats. They're not showing up because they have some legitimate problem that they need to solve in order to be able to show up. And if we can use this technology to, to help people, then that seems like a better application of it to me. But the way they're being used in courtrooms does disturb Kroll. And that's something he wants us to think about, how a tool like artificial intelligence is being used and what we're ignoring when we decide that ease and speed are more important values. I think it's important that we think of these scores as implementing policy decisions within our local jurisdictions. Uh, And just as we wouldn't ever buy a full-fledged manual of court policy from some third-party corporate vendor, we go through a public process with hearings and meetings and people come and express their opinions and that's how we come up with the right policy. I do worry that when we bake decision-making power into technology, it lasts a long time. Uh, And because of automation bias and because of the fact that by putting decision-making power into the structure of a problem or the structure of a situation, we take it away from humans. And humans, you can change their minds, you can change their experiences, you can teach them why they were wrong, you can, um, yeah, I was just thinking of A Christmas Carol and, and Ebenezer Scrooge, right, is goes through this life-changing experience to come to the realization that everything he's done for many years is is wrong-headed and he should behave very differently. And when you put that decision-making power into the structure of the problem, it lasts a lot longer and it creates a much stronger effect. Like if you were to change the technology, it would take, I think, much longer for the rest of society to restructure itself around that. And what you do then, you run the risk of ossifying the unfairness in society today 
in the technology that we will be using tomorrow. I started out by saying that when you use machine learning to find patterns, those patterns are useful insofar as the uh, future looks a lot like the past. Well, if we don't want the future to look like the past, then maybe we should do something about that, and that might mean not trying to take patterns from the past and applying them to the future. That was Joshua Kroll from the UC Berkeley School of Information. And he's not the only one with concerns about the future. A group of people in Los Angeles were also concerned, and we're about to hear from them next. The problem with big data systems is that people often feel powerless. There's so much information being gathered all the time, and these corporations are large and powerful. So what chance do people have of stopping artificial intelligence? So my name is Jamie. I'm with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. I'm a volunteer. We have a saying in the coalition. We talk about build power, not paranoia. We wanted to end the show with our talk with Jamie Garcia because the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition recently had a big win in Los Angeles. We were able to see the Office of Inspector General basically audit two of LAPD's data-driven policing programs, also known as predictive policing programs. They were Operation LASER, which stands for LA Strategic Extraction and Restoration, and PREDPOL. The Los Angeles Police Department actually, on its own, um, terminated the LASER program. Okay, let's back up a little bit here. We haven't talked much about predictive policing but it's a form of artificial intelligence, like a risk assessment, which is becoming extremely popular across the nation. Here's how it works. So for Operation Laser, what they used um, are two different programs, right, to determine what places they were going to pre-criminalize and who they were going to pre-criminalize. So for the place-based component, they used a kind of density mapping program called ArcGIS to create hotspots of where they claimed that gun and gang violence was going to occur. And they also used a risk assessment to determine who they were going to pre-criminalize. And this risk assessment included five different factors um, to basically give people a certain amount of points, the person with the most points being effectively the person who is targeted by LAPD. And they kind of create this most wanted poster of you, give them to line officers and say, go out and find this person. The Stop LAPD Spying Coalition knew that the LAPD had a predictive policing program, and they knew it was part of a larger system of surveillance that they wanted to fight. So they began organizing against it in 2013. They talked to community members. We had about a group of 10 folks, majority of them from Skid Row, all in a room in our office, and we sat around and started talking about the little bit that we knew about predictive policing. They also got together with all kinds of community groups in affected areas. Specifically groups in East L.A., there's an autonomous group in Boyle Heights known as the OVAs. And we actually coordinated not only teach-ins for the community, but we actually did bike rides through the different zones that Operation Laser was targeting. And all the while, they wrote reports and pushed the Office of the Inspector General to audit the AI programs. And so by the time we get into 2019, so much of the community is aware of this program and so much power has been built 
that when the Office of Inspector General released his audit, it became very apparent to LAPD that they had to do something and they had to do it now. And that effectively meant that they ended the laser program, which is a sheer win for the community, a sheer win across all boards for the community. That was Jamie Garcia from the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition talking about the end of the laser program in Los Angeles, a kind of predictive policing software. And before that, we heard from Joshua Kroll from the University of California Berkeley School of Information. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact and RadioProject.org. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about artificial intelligence? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. And on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. The making contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, Aisha Chowdhury, and Lisa Rudman. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Mm-hmm.